0: Please, if you would, you have a copy of God's word, turn to Romans six, the sixth chapter of Romans. Dr. Overly asked, you're going to preach Romans six, seven, and eight. <laughs> all in one sermon. I think you you know me better than to imagine I could even attempt such a task. Uh, but I will be drawing from all three chapters. And I trust it will be a blessing to you, as the thought of it has been a blessing to me this past week. Part of the struggle of the Christian life is the constant battle to live up to the light that we have. constant sense or certainly frequent sense of failure that we have is very real. Some believers struggle more than others regarding the ongoing battle with sin and the reality of sin. And it finds expression at times in various degrees and ways. Sometimes stifling any joy, robbing of any power in the Christian life. So I hope the message tonight will be of encouragement to you, to us all. I'm going to read just verse 1 of Romans 6. We will be reading other Sections of this epistle, but message slightly different tonight than our usual approach. But hope these thoughts are of profit to you. Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Should we? This is clearly not the will of God. And Lord, help us, even from the reading of that one verse and the many others that will follow, to receive the Word of God, believe it, and recognize that God speaks through His living truth. And the people of God said, Amen. Let's pray. Lord, give us hearing ears now. And break the chains that hold us that prevent us from living in victory. Some here are still entirely enslaved to sin, and they need a miracle. Others are in and out of a sense of defeat. They also need an act of God. We pray that it might please Thee to make real Thy truth to us, bring us into the experience of what is promised and encouraged in thy word. Extend thy kingdom then. Help especially our young people to grasp the power of the gospel. Give me now of thy spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Of all of the Apostle Paul's letters, none of them refer to the concept of hope as much as the epistle to the Romans. Given how the epistle begins, given its emphasis in the opening chapters, which I'm not going to rehearse. For those who don't know, let me put it really briefly so you're not entirely in a vacuum, but the the opening chapters of, of Romans detail man's condition, whether Jew or Gentile, whoever you are, that you are a rebel against God and without divine intervention, you tend to be on this spiral that goes from bad to worse and in this perpetual condition of rebellion against God. And society at large is affected by it and becomes worse and worse and worse. We're seeing, really, this is for those of us who know the Lord and read the Word, we, we see the unfolding of the latter section of Romans 1 happening before our very eyes in American culture and society. But the purpose the apostle has is to remove any foundation that is false, to dismantle any hope, whether in the heart of the Jew or the Gentile, that they can save themselves or justify themselves before God. And they, they, they kind of conclusion that that section is that we're all sinners, we're all lost, that all the world, to use the language of chapter 3, all the world is guilty before God, every single person. There's no exceptions to be made except in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, really, beginning in that way, we might come to a sense of despair. And yet, as I say, In this epistle, the apostle deals with hope more than in any other. And that's how it is so often, isn't it? That it is in the depths of despair that hope takes on its greatest significance. Having illuminated the mind of the the real condition of men and shattering any false hopes that they have, then the true hope can shine and we can be drawn to it. The concept of hope is one explored in the Old Testament as well. Especially in Job and in the book of Psalms, out of the ashes of a fallen world, hope is carried in the wings of the Son of righteousness. Our gaze is taken off ourselves and to be placed upon Jesus Christ. Though man be lost, utterly lost, he can be saved. This salvation is through the work of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All three in the Godhead bring about this wonder of eternal salvation. So in Romans 5, if you just step back to chapter 5 of Romans, you'll see all three persons in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit referenced. In relation to our justification, Romans 5 verse 1, therefore being justified by faith, that is being legally made right before God, legally put in a position of acceptance before God, being justified, it is by faith, not by any works, By faith, we have peace with God, the Father, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the sentence continues, we go to verse 5. Hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God, the Father, is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. So the apostle, in laying out the condition, the stance, the blessed truth, of how a man is justified, pulls in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that they all participate, all cooperate, all work and function in the economy of the Trinity to bring about our salvation. And the apostle then builds on this idea. He builds on the idea of the triune God functioning, working in various ways in relation to the experience of the believer, that not only does the triune God save us, but He also Sanctifies, he is changing our lives, transforming the believer, and this comes into view then in Romans six, seven and eight, it bears the marks of Trinitarian theology. And seeing this the other day, I, I thought, can, can I can I pull this together in some coherent fashion that it may be a blessing to you? That's going to be my attempt this evening, that you may see. For your encouragement, the triune God warring against sin in his saints, the triune God, who made the heavens and the earth and upholds all things, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit functioning in sovereign governance over this entire world, exercises a desire and works continually to give to the believer justified by faith victory over sin. Our problem is we don't dwell on it. Our faith language is in in some kind of disabled condition in which it is unable or reluctant or through ignorance cannot seize upon what it is that God is doing in our lives. So, there's much in this chapter, and of course, I can't read every verse or bring every verse to bear, and that's not my intention tonight. But to say this before we proceed, all of this has its foundation in Christ. He is the mediator of the elect. He is the one set aside or appointed to be the one who brings about immediate salvation, all functions through Him. And so, you'll see through in the end of every one of the chapters that are kind of in this central part of the epistle, look at the end of Romans 5, Romans 5, 21. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what I want you to see, That is He Ties up this thought here, the end of chapter 5, there is this recognition that's by Jesus Christ our Lord. The end of chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through, or again by, Jesus Christ our Lord. The end of chapter 7, we'll read from verse 24 for some of the context. wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then chapter 8 verse, well we'll read from verse 38 again for context. 838, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus, or Christ Jesus our Lord. So it all comes, the, all the themes, all the ideas in these chapters culminate in a focus on the Lord Jesus Christ as the mediator, the foundation upon which we have this salvation. If He had not come, if He had not lived, if He had not died, if He had not risen again, none of this can come to pass. It necessitates His person and work. Believers are no longer under the governing headship of Adam, but under the liberating headship of Christ. That is their foundation, and that makes all the difference. It is meant to make a difference, child of God. Being represented by Christ rather than Adam is not merely a theological position, but it's meant to have practical implications. It is something that you are to reckon. Something you are to dwell upon. Something you are to seize. Let it bed into your heart and mind. So that whenever there are those times of temptation and Satan comes against you and trials and difficulties cause you to question whether you're loved by God or whatever the occasion that brings despair to your heart. In times when the world seems so alluring... So tempting, and you as young people feel yourself being drawn away to do things you know are against the will of God. Where is the source of your strength? It is built on the foundation of Christ's person and work, but it is all, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all functioning to liberate you, give you true victory. And that's what I want us to see this evening with the Lord's help. So I've titled the message, The Triune God Warring Against Sin and Saints. The Triune God Warring Against Sin and Saints. And if you go back and you muse upon the language of the hymn we sang before I began to preach, you will see that theme coming out in that language. That the Triune God functions to sanctify, works to deliver and transform Every child of God. So the headings are are straightforward. A life lived to God the Father. A life lived in God the Son. And a life lived by God the Holy Spirit. That is where we will go tonight with the Lord's help. So a life lived to God the Father. Again, looking at chapter 6. This is where we, we see this. And of course, it's not that it's exclusively dealing or mentioning God the Father. That is not my intention. It's just in terms of focus, in terms of emphasis. And in Romans 6, if I was to give an overview of this chapter, obviously I can't preach every verse, but the overview is that through the gospel, the dominion of sin has been broken, and the child of God is helped to resist sin and yield himself to God. Through the gospel, the dominion of sin has been broken, and we are helped to resist sin and yield ourselves to God. Look at verse 8, Romans 6, verse 8. Now, if we be dead with Christ, and that's that's true, I mean, in other words, if you're truly saved, (laughs) if we be dead with Christ, We believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves. Seize upon this. It's like the apostles grasping at the mind of those in Rome, telling them, here's, here's, you need to understand this. There is liberty that comes through grasping truth. And this truth then is bedding into their minds. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. Let your standing in Christ live out in how you see yourself positionally. Let what is true in terms of what God sees in regards to you and your relationship and your union to Christ, let that then govern your thinking. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For ye are not under the law, but under grace. Just a few thoughts drawn here from this section. First, you're free to live to the Father's glory. You're free to live to the Father's glory. Verse 10, For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. The implication of that is meant to govern our thinking as well. That what Christ has done and now living to the glory of the Father is something that we are meant to imbibe, appropriate, and enjoy. That you're not here to live for your own glory. You're not on this earth simply to live for the glory of another person or another kingdom, whether it be your own nation or some other entity or enterprise. But you're free to live for the glory of God. Now, when this practically permeates other areas of of the Word of God, as the apostle deals with the realities of life, such as people who are enslaved, They're slaves. They have no freedom. They're not able to choose how they're going to live. Their life is dictated for them. They can't change jobs. They're slaves. But the language that the apostle uses when dealing with such gives them this sense of liberty. That they don't live simply to the the pleasure or or joy or glory of their master on earth. But living as unto God. Living for the glory of God. Now that's practical. That means that as you, you function in employment in this world, you go out there and you have your employer, your master, those over you, that you are to... Grasp this, that as you face each day and all your responsibilities, you are to harness this understanding. I'm not just living for a paycheck, and I'm not just living to meet the needs that I am contracted to to meet. I'm not just here to satisfy or do what this man or woman needs me to do, but I, I am living as unto God. There's freedom there. living for the Father's glory. Secondly, you're free to enjoy the Father's fellowship, to enjoy the Father's fellowship. Verse 11, Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God. Alive unto God. Not just living unto God, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. As a result of your union with Christ, You are alive unto God. There is life. You have fellowship. You go and read the language, the emphasis of the Lord Jesus in John 14 and 15 and 16 as well. What is he bringing out there? He's bringing out this this unity, the blessing of this unity. And again, you see a Trinitarian emphasis on what it is he deals with. The Father and the Son, what? Making their abode in the believer. The vine and us being the branches in this union so that we might bear fruit. That is what? Herein is your Father glorified that you bear much fruit. It's all unto the Father. Do you have this emphasis in terms of, of the Lord Jesus helping us to see that we're not simply living unto Him merely and solely, but in light of the triune God? That we are to we are brought into this fellowship, this fellowship, so that the Father is, is joined to us through Christ, and we are joined to the Father through Christ. Now, think of what that means. Think of it, child of God. Consider the implications of being joined to God, in fellowship with God, and think of the grounds of it. The grounds of it is not your performance. The foundation of it is not how you've lived or failed to live. The foundation is how Christ has lived, is what he has accomplished. And every day that you live, every single day, you are in this position in which you are in union with God the Father. You are alive unto God. And what the apostle is saying is, Reckon this, get it into your mind, let it grip your heart, let it dominate your thinking. So that as you live day by day and you face trials and difficulties and the effects of the curse and the whole of creation groaneth and you along with it, that you are alive unto God. There's a living union with you and God the Father that will never break. You're only going to enter into a greater enjoyment of it and expression of it in the future. Alive unto God. Now maybe some of you are not alive unto God not alive unto God. The the, the root of the matter is not there. So I pause at this juncture to say that this is what you need. This is how God made man. Adam rebelled. Man has been in constant rebellion against God since then, since the garden, constantly fighting against the will, the will of the Father and seeking for pleasure in anything but what God has provided and who God is. And still we fall into this trap, still, still, I'm professing believers, still, listen, child of God, you're trying to find satisfaction, you're so desperate to, to make something of yourself in this world, and you have certain aspirations and desires, and I get it, I'm not against it, but there has to be this recognition, recognition of your, your primary, your primary position and purpose. You're alive unto God whatever else is dead in your life, relationships that are dead, hopes that perish, job opportunities that pass you by, relationships that don't work out, these things, these things may die, but you're still, get it, get it, you're still alive unto God. Now I wish I could articulate to you just how vital that is in your enjoyment in this life. If you make, if you just see what the apostle's doing, again, look at verse 11. It's like he's, he's, he's desperate for them to get this. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Why, why would you be tempted by sins and by temptations? Why, why would you see the appeal in those things? You're dead to those things. The power of those things have been broken. They no longer bring you joy or satisfaction. They bring nothing lasting to you. Yes, they can bring some kind of temporary enjoyment. For sure, certain sins, expression, or giving ourselves to certain temptations may have some measure of satisfaction for a moment. The Bible speaks of the pleasures of sin for a season for the child of God, there can be no joy in this. There's nothing more miserable on the planet than a child of God, truly saved, meddling with sin and trying to find joy. He can't. Why? Because he's made to be alive unto God, not onto these things. Listen, child of God, you're free to live to the Father's glory. You're free to enjoy the Father's fellowship. Thirdly, you're free to obey the Father's will. Verse 13. What does it say? Yield yourselves unto God. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. There's a lot there, but just focusing on on what, the essence of what the apostle is encouraging and exhorting. Yield yourselves unto God. Yield yourselves unto God. He has a will for you, a plan. A great measure of that plan is is explicitly revealed. You say, what's God's will for my life? What does the Father want for me? It's here. It's here. Read it every day. Read all of it. Constantly read it. Systematically read it. Repeatedly read it. Read more than you plan to read, should time allow. You manage to get through what you normally read, and then you have a little free time. Don't waste it. Read more. Read it again. Read what you read that morning. Read it again. Get it into your heart even more. Are we satisfied with checking boxes when our Father has a will for us? has given to us, His plan, His desire. He said, here, here, take this. Take this. Enjoy it. Live it. Imbibe it. It's full of precious promises. We'll guide you. And what do we do? We, we barely open it. We seldom consider it or think upon it. And Christians are living on some kind of spiritual life support, just about Surviving. And then they come up with questions. I don't know what God's will is for my life. Of course you don't. You haven't the first clue. You never read the Word. You're not in it. You're not considering it. You're free. You're free to yield yourselves onto God. To, To look at what it says and say, yes, I want all of that. And just yield yourself to God and all the expressions of His will. You're free to do that. You see, once you couldn't do it. You couldn't do it. We see it in the religious, in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. We see it in the Old Testament as well, where even when they were trying to do that which was required of them, there was always something undermining that. It's a way of undermining the power of God's Word. But we've been transformed. We want it, all of it. Don't we, young person? Don't you? Is this not what you want? Father's will. Why don't you yield yourselves unto God? Why? Later on, he's going to give more plain expression to this yielding, isn't he? In Romans 12, we present our bodies a living sacrifice Holy, acceptable unto God is your reasonable service. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. It's here. Yield yourselves unto God. There's no one who has done it, there's no one who lives in it who regrets yielding themselves to God. And in doing so, of course, as we yield ourselves to God, of course, that allows us to be liberated from the competing force, doesn't it? The competing force of yielding our members as instruments of unrighteousness onto sin. Because <laughs> you can't remain idle. There's no neutrality when it comes to holiness. Either yielding yourself unto God or yielding your members as instruments unto of a righteousness unto sin. Let's move on. Secondly, a life lived in God the Son. A life lived in God the Son. This brings us to chapter seven. As we've seen in chapter six, Paul explains how Christ delivered us from sin when he died, and so we, we died to sin in him. This is what happens. There's a change, even in our whole frame and conduct, in our relationship to sin, that happens in our justification. But while we are alive in our bodies, we continue then to deal with the reality of sin in us and around us. We don't get this perfect break from sin because of the world in which we live and the bodies that we have. Now, in Romans 6, there's talk about slavery, and Paul uses the analogy of slavery to sin and contrasting that with slavery to God and yielding ourselves to God. When you come to chapter 7, he argues similarly, only the depiction is an analogy of marriage. I'll not read the opening verses, but he, he shows that just as death breaks the marital vow and obligation, so death with Christ breaks our union with sin as well. So the chapter, while it doesn't repeatedly or explicitly make reference to Christ as the key to breaking the condemnation of the law, yet it is implied. It is implied that what we have in Christ and our position and union to Christ is what severs then or It brings us to this place where we are able to to know liberty despite this body of death. But it doesn't come to the fore, of course, until the very end of the chapter, where in the midst of the reality that we're in, verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So there is this deliverance couple of things, just a note here. The reality of sin is brought out by the law. The reality of sin is brought out by the law. The apostle argues that the presence of the commandment, in that presence, sin becomes transgression, that we begin to see it or understand it as transgression against the law. It's not Easy, and by rushing through this, this is where I was really hesitant and I began to think, getting into the weeds here, am I going to do justification to this? But just read from verse 7, if I can try and just dip in here and give you some semblance of understanding. Romans 7, verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence or like strong desire or appetite. For without the law, sin was dead. It's not that sin didn't exist, but he didn't understand. He didn't know it, wasn't aware of it. The law brought it to life in his conscience. Verse 9, for I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived, it came to life, and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life I found to be unto death. For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it slew me. So what the apostle says here is that in his own mind, that he he thought he was fine. But when the commandment came, and there, there's argument over the commandment means all of the Ten Commandments, or as the specific commandment referred to here in, at the end of verse 7, thou shalt not covet. Certainly, that's included and is the most likely explanation. The commandment is this particular one, though it may involve them all, whatever the case. It's like he's living unaware of his own sin. And then it comes to life when this particular commandment seizes upon him and he begins to realize his shortcomings. Now, in speaking about this issue, he he ties it into a similar experience that happened with Adam and Eve, doesn't he? Because when he talks about, in verse 11, sin taking occasion by the commandment, deceive me. It's like it comes to deceive. And there's the power, the power of of deception. And then uh, when it deceives and he falls to the deception, he becomes dead, Feels himself to be slain by it. This, of course, is what happened to Eve, isn't it? He writes in 1 Timothy 2.14, the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Now, the particular commandment, just just for some context here, the particular commandment that bothered Paul was this tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet. In other words, he, he, he thought to himself that everything was fine, but thou shalt not covet, and he mentions it without all the additional objects that the actual commandment in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 refer to, that we shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and so on and so forth. He doesn't, he doesn't include all of that. He just gives it explicitly as it's given in the, in the short abbreviated aspect of it, thou shalt not covet, generally speaking. And you ask yourself, well, what's the big deal about coveting? But to covet is an attempt to dethrone God. It substitutes the will of God for the will of man. And that's why Paul then in Colossians 3.5 says it's idolatry. He equates it to idolatry. Because it's dethroning God and substitutes the will of God for the will of man. And this is what comes to Paul. Here's a man thinking that he's obeying God and realizes that he's actually against God. He has dethroned God and substituted God's will for his own. So he's brought to the reality of his sin by the law, the same thing has to happen to you. If you're not saved, if you're not saved, the same thing has to happen to you. There needs to be this, this dawning that you are living in disobedience against God, that you have broken His commands, and that that's not a small thing. And you come then thinking that everything's fine in your life. All of a sudden, you're devastated by the knowledge that you have broken God's law and you have no hope and you're shattered from your pride. You have nowhere to run, nowhere to go, and you have no peace. And this is then where the gospel comes in. There we say to you, run to Jesus Christ. The reality of sin is brought out by the law, but the deliverance from sin is expected through Christ. And that's where you get to the end of the chapter, where in Paul wrestling with this, and you read through the language, he is struggling. He, he, he reflects the struggle that though he has told this people to reckon themselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ, and that is his standing, he, he recognizes, he accepts, he confesses, he tells autobiographically, as it were, of his own struggle. That though he is completely yielded to God, desires God's will, wants what he has for him, yet there is constantly a principle, a law in his members, a struggle with this body of this flesh that has such a habit and inclination to do that which is against God's will so in his mind, he desires and he longs for that which pleases God. But in the body, there's this constant struggle. Where's the deliverance? Must he live continually oppressed by this body of flesh? No. I think sometimes we do not dwell sufficiently on the fact that though Paul expressly says there is an ongoing fight, he does Retain hope and constant expectation that what Christ has done for him will give deliverance. And though he be a wretched man, verse 24, the question may be asked legitimately, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? He has grounds to thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's it's like the marriage to Christ, the union in Christ, the standing in the Son, The position he has through the finished work of Christ is the ground of his hope. Beloved, as you think about your, the theology of what is reflected here, and yet the reality that you live with day by day, your hope is not to try harder. Your hope is to keep believing and keep running and shepherding your own heart into who Christ is and what he has done. Keep bringing yourself to the heart of the gospel. Keep bringing yourself to the foot of the cross. Keep bringing yourself to the empty tomb. And keep considering that the Lord Jesus Christ wants to break the bands of sin and liberate you. He is more invested in your holiness than you are. And He wants you to live to His glory. You go to Him every day. You beg of Him. The strength you need. You beg of him the power of his resurrection to manifest itself in your life. Thirdly, a life lived by God, the Holy Spirit. A life lived by God, the Holy Spirit. We come to chapter 8. Read the opening verses of this chapter. Here you'll see the Apostle puts the spotlight on the Holy Spirit. Through the gospel, we are enabled to live in the Spirit and obtain victory over the flesh. That it's not just recognizing our union to the Father through Christ and yielding ourselves on to God, and it's not just seeing what Christ has done for us and considering Him breaking the power of sin in our life, but it's also seeing the work of the Spirit. Romans 8 verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. But the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus Hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And just pause there. Verses 3 and 4, so pivotal. Because what it's showing is that the law couldn't bring salvation because we are incapable of of living perfectly by it and satisfying its demands. And so instead, of course, God sends His Son who can live it out and obtain righteousness for us so that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh... mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, I don't need, again, to say anything regarding how packed these verses are and what may be considered from them, but just, again, to leave two simple thoughts with you. First, we are enabled to walk after the Spirit. We are enabled to walk after the Spirit. The apostle, recognizing that there is no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, that such who are in a position, don't walk after the flesh, but after the Spirit. That's what verse 1 says. It's repeated then in verse 4. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. To walk after the Spirit. And the same comes up again in Galatians. That we don't do the works of the flesh, but we, we do what the, what the Spirit moves us to do. And we're fulfilling what the Spirit desires. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. We're led in that direction. We're provoked in that path. And those of us who are in Christ, those of us justified, standing on this foundation, in union with the triune God through Christ, now walk after the Spirit. So are we yielding ourselves to God? The Father or to the Spirit? Yes, the Spirit has been given. You're to please God the Father. You're living for His glory. But the Spirit is here and abides with us forever. He is given as the Paraclete, the one who comes alongside, the one who lives in you. That in the economy of the Trinity, the function of the Spirit of God is to equip you, empower you, enable you, and facilitate you reaching the objective, achieving what the Father desires so that you're not sanctified merely by your own effort, but by trusting and resting and depending upon the ministry of the Spirit of God. Your prayer each morning as you yield yourself unto God is to recognize, I need the Spirit's help. I need the Spirit. Fill me with the Spirit. Empower me with the Spirit. Enable me, O God. And too rarely does that prayer come from the lips of God's people. Seldom is it that they recognize they can't do what they've been called to do and they can't live in the victory they've been called to live in without the enabling power of the Spirit. So that God, in ensuring that He gets all the glory, has designed it that we are utterly dependent on the Spirit of God to bring glory to Him. Again, that's that no flesh should glory in His presence. Is that not right? If we were to say, well, having saved us and given us a few tools along the way, now we can do everything that God wants us to do. That's not it. Christian, you are to begin the day dependent on the Spirit. You are to move through your day dependent on the Spirit. You're constantly to recognize your dependence on the Spirit. You're to invite the Spirit, desire the Spirit, be led of the Spirit, walk after the Spirit, constantly. This is your only curb to not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And it is a position you're in. Since there's no condemnation upon you, since there's no reason why God should condemn you because of what Christ has done, Because you're in union with God and you're brought into the experience of covenant realities that God is your God and you are one of His people, since that is now yours, then evidently you walk not after the flesh. You're not walking as the Egyptians walked. You're not going in the path of the Canaanites. You're not living in this carnal way, but you're walking after the Spirit. Spirit, like a pillar of cloud and fire before you, you're walking after Him in this wilderness of life, keeping your gaze upon Him, desiring His leading in every aspect. And oh, how the Spirit desires your holiness, your Christ likeness. He does. And how it must grieve Him when we neglect His ministry, when we face our days imagining that the power lies within ourselves, how can you overcome the afflictions of life, the temptations of life, the sorrows of life? How is it that you avoid being crushed by many of the consequences of a fallen world as they come to you. How? Walk after the Spirit. We are unable to walk after the Spirit, and we are unable to desire that which the Spirit desires. Verses 5 through 7. to Desire that which the Spirit desires. This is amazing. It's amazing because, as verse 7 says, this is this is against everything that we are by nature. But read from verse 5. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed Can be. There is rebellion in carnal man. There is this position of disobedience, wanting nothing to do with what God has for His creation. But you've been transformed. This is how you were. You were carnally minded. You were given to carnal things, your mind was bent to carnal things. And some of you know this, even when you were, you were raised in a Christian home, you've never known not attending church. But you came to church and you were a little self-righteous Pharisee. And you know it. You knew how to say the right things and do the right things and everything that was outwardly expected of you. But deep down, you, were, you, you, you had no real desire after the things of God. And you love to navigate life, perhaps even making sure that your siblings got in trouble for things, trying to get them found guilty for things that maybe you were involved with, and they just navigating those, those early years of, of deception. And then you get older, the sin doesn't go away, it just becomes more sophisticated. And you continue to live in that way. And really, there's just this worldly, carnal mentality. You want the world. You want what you want. You're living for yourself. It is about you. And then God steps in, opens your eyes, shows you the the selfishness that lies within your heart. And you realize that that's how you've been living, selfishly. You repent of your sins, you turn on to Christ, and all of a sudden now you want you're spiritually minded. You're spiritually minded. You want to read your Bible. Not because you have to, simply, but there's like this again, this is this is the word of the Father. This is this is what He has given. And you, you desire to know His mind and to do His will and to please Him. And you you think about what it might mean to surrender your life and you do that to the best of your ability and you Ask the Lord what would you have me to do, and you start living in this way. You're spiritually minded, and you understand spiritual conversation. You understand why people would come and have the Bible explained to them, why they would gather and worship and corporate praise, why they would pray together. You understand these things; they make sense to you because you're spiritually minded, and of course because you're walking in harmony with God, and you desire the will of God, and you're seeking to please God. You have this experience of life and peace. Life and peace. The whole point of this section, beloved, is the practical implication of doctrine that having rested in Jesus Christ You're not simply to live a constant life of struggle. But you are to see the triune God as condescending to fellowship with you and aid you in your ultimate objective. And what's that objective? What is it that is revealed in Romans it that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of the son and we are not left to attain that on ourselves on our own left in our own meandering experience to hopefully arrive at the goal the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all coming alongside in various ways, in various capacities, supplying the need that you be conformed to the image of the Son. Christian, don't live in despair. Don't let the feet mount up as an insurmountable wall, like a city that can never be conquered. Realize that as you walk around the walls of that city, Your God is with you. There are no walls that cannot be pulled down and destroyed. Jericho will fall. Those besetting sins can be crushed. And enjoying a life of victory through the triune God is your birthright as a Christian. May the Lord help us. Let's bow together in prayer. If you're not a Christian, it's the triune God you need. And your thought should not first go to, I need him to help me through life. But you need him to be prepared for eternity. We are all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give account of ourselves to God. And you need the blood of Christ to wash away your sins. Don't leave here trying to turn over a new leaf. Don't leave here imagining something you must do to enjoy life and peace. You need to turn to Christ. Need to confess your sin. Need to abandon your attachment to sin and put it upon the Lord Jesus, who upon the cross died as the just one for the unjust, like you, in order to bring you to God. Lord, bless thy word. Help us. Help us to acquaint ourselves with what we have, what is true. What the blood of Christ has procured, enable us to remember these things, hold them in our hearts, and when we face each day and all that it may contain, may our minds dwell much on the triune God, a loving Father, a sympathizing Savior, and an abiding spirit bless us and prepare us and equip us for the week ahead. Encourage in the time of fellowship and may the grace of our Lord Jesus the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Spirit be the abiding portion of every child of God. Now and evermore. Amen.